0: This is not to say there are no regrets, and I'm just going to read, I don't know, a little less than half of it. Storm clouds clotted the sky. Looking at our bedroom window, I started to say something innocuous about the weather, but the way things were going, no comment was innocuous. Every phrase was examined, unpacked, inspected at the border. I had already caught myself on the verge of saying something about my physical condition. I try my best to keep my complaints to myself, but that isn't the same as ignoring them, which is why I was sitting on the side of the bed, naked except for a knee brace, knocking back two ibuprofen dry, and apparently muttering. (laughs) Just relax, my wife said, dumping a load of clean laundry onto the bed. Sometimes I think she gets more done before I get dressed than I do all day. Maybe it will rain and nobody will get to do anything. I could feel myself about to start in, but caught myself. Didn't say a word. Who wants to hear it? My wife, that's who, or so she thinks. Don't be all sullen with me, she said, popping me in the head with a sock ball. She'll do that, say something serious and do something playful at the same time, which she means is reassuring or comforting or loving, but half the time is confusing or, in this case, exasperating. There I was, trying not to hit something, and she pops me in the head with my socks, which I then had to bend down and grope for under the edge of the bed, aggravating this lower back problem that I'm not going to mention again, don't worry. (laughs) I'm not sullen, I told her, "I'm, but I couldn't think of the word. Angry, irritated, pissed off, aggravated, disappointed, sad. They all applied, but no one of them seemed to do the job. Either there aren't enough words, or I've got the working vocabulary of a chipmunk. The worst thing you could do is belabor the issue, she said, folding things and putting them in paws behind me. I could have looked up and watched her in the mirror, but I was bent over, trying to loosen a crick in my neck. I've gotten to the age where getting out of bed involves a lot of maintenance. Maybe, if you leave it alone, he'll change his mind. Fat chance, I nearly said, but didn't. But after 25 years, she can hear what I'm thinking, which makes self-restraint a waste of effort. Maybe, she said, and I could hear in her voice, hope. Specifically, that thin, baseless hope, like you have when you toss a penny into a fountain, or pick up a lottery ticket that's already been scratched. I didn't want to know whether she was hoping that he'd change his mind or that I'd pretend I didn't care or that in some other way the pressure of having two warring males in her house would magically disappear. None of this was her fault. Well, almost none of it. I was acting like a teenager and so was he, but he had the perfectly reasonable justification that he was a teenager. So, in addition to being angry, irritated, etc. with him, I was angry, irritated, etc. with myself, not to mention grumpy from not having slept well, thanks to the back thing I'm not mentioning. With the result that I wanted to run out and adopt a full-grown dog just to kick it, which is to say I was sitting there nearly naked except etc. waiting for the ibuprofen to kick in, wishing I were a better person. But I'm not, and our son, I'll call him Ernie, though that is not, thank God, his name, (laughs) is a teenager, so both a growing young man of whom I am inordinately proud and, both at other times, and you'll understand if you've parented a teenager, even simultaneously a major pain in my ass, side, beleaguered neck. The issue, just to put it on the table so you can see for yourself how petty I am, is that Ernie had announced the night before that he would not be going with us to the 4th of July picnic party we had been going to as a family for low these many years. So what's the big deal? Was he missing the picnic, this family ritual, the celebration of our nation's escape from the tyranny of men wearing wigs because he was so committed to some job that he had agreed to work on the holiday? Was he making money to pay for his own car insurance? Was he volunteering as a literacy coach for disabled immigrants? Was he enrolled in the overpriced summer program at Big Deal University, for which his grandmother, bless her, had offered to pay? Did he have a lacerated spleen? No no, no no no. (laughs) My boy, my Ernie, fruit of my loom, had, but you've guessed, a girlfriend. There have been other girlfriends. There was Rachel, shy artist, Claudia, student council vice president, Michelle, potential lead singer for a band that existed approximately five hours, Carly, all-state volleyball player and debate club captain, an assortment of girls who didn't come around often enough to make an impression, and who knows how many we never met. Ernie is an outgoing boy, smart and funny, happy to be in groups of his peers, intent on defining himself as a unique individual, moving through passions like a bearded 19th century prospector sifting for nuggets, burning 900 new songs onto his MP3 player nightly, then making mixes to give away the way early explorers used to give baubles to the natives a prime candidate for the first surgical procedure that will embed a cell phone inside the user's skull. Faster at text messaging than the guy who sent the SOS from the Titanic, both dependent on us and hell-bent on declaring his independence, or as I said, a teenager, an American teenager of the newly minted 21st century, an American teenager rejecting his family in order to spend the 4th of July, the holiday it is not lost on me, also known as Independence Day, in the company of a girl named Ara. Ara. Not Lara. No, he had assured us, exasperated. But then these days most questions from us exasperate him. Though the girl herself asked the same question, smiles her inward reflective product of meditation smile. A smile that says, you are a poor and pitiable creature. Says simply, no. And yes, it was the name her parents, Ricky, which would be fine, except it's the mother's name, and Branch, the father, Branch, as of a ginkgo, gave her. Ara, Ricky, and Branch put in the same room for 45 hours as we were one night at school. Exactly nothing is what we had to talk about. They had bought an old Volkswagen to have it converted to biodiesel. They had spent spring break in Costa Rica helping to rebuild a village school. They bought fantastically overpriced organic free trade vegan groceries from Heartland, one of those dimly lit stores where you can get Belgian beer, 74 kinds of hummus, incense sticks, a chair massage by the cheese counter, then check out magazines with cover stories about your healthy colon before paying a smiling girl sporting dreadlocks and tattoos. The Catholic Church in which I was raised is, by comparison, a laugh riot. The first time he stepped into our house, Branch shook my hand, took a look around, silently tallying our offenses, and immediately launched into a list of atrocities being done on foreign soil by the American-owned manufacturer of our refrigerator, the clear implication being that by offering him a beer, I had just murdered a child in Sri Lanka. Don't you think, my wife said, you're being a little oversensitive? About Branch? I asked her. Or Yoko? My wife responded with that look that means she's glad there's no one else within earshot. You are asking for big trouble. I know this. Calling my son's girlfriend names is bad behavior and will only make things worse. Although given that she's starting with R, you wouldn't think much damage could be done. The funny thing is, Ara fits. Either that or she's dedicated herself to living up to it. She wears those long peasant skirts you'd imagine she'd wear and doesn't walk so much as waft, born on some invisible current. She brings our son incense, and oddly shaped hunks of soap, and vegan whatnot she bakes herself. For his birthday, she gave him a loofah. When we had her over for dinner, she turned down everything but the salad, then asked Ernie, as if he has a clue where groceries come from, if it was organic. It said so on the bag, my wonderful, always oh, a step ahead of me wife said. Oh, this girl Ara said with that smile of hers, that doesn't mean anything. She launched into a rant, if you can rant peacefully, about what organic should mean and what the government allows it to mean and how agribusiness corrupts fair and healthy practices as fast as it can. And before you know it, our dinner conversation was about growth hormones in milk and the evils of Monsanto seeds and irrigating with human sewage. Another corn dog, I asked the table at large. And Ernie and my wife, Julia if it helps to know, set their tasers on stun. Just kidding, I added. All of this passive aggression, not to mention the aggressive aggression, is, of course, in part, my way of expressing my love for our son. A minute ago, he was riding on my shoulders, and now he's on the verge of moving on, moving out, becoming the adult we were raising him to be. This departure is natural, even desirable, and if he showed no interest in girls, going to college, or heading off on his own, I would no doubt be aggravated and despairing about that instead. But the way it's shaping up, I've got his imminent loss to grieve and a girl with a funny name to blame it on. I tell myself I'm the sort of man who, after reflection, can rise to the occasion despite the near total lack of evidence that this is the case. Ah, I say, still sitting on the edge of our bed naked except for the knee brace, wondering whether it'd be better or worse to eat another half a dozen ibuprofen. Pushing closed a dresser drawer, having completed yet another chore, Julia said coolly, we don't have to go to the picnic if you don't want to. But this was the sort of test anyone with the slightest interest in preserving his or her marriage knows how to pass. No, no, I said we should go. That's how it felt, like an obligation, though to whom or to what I couldn't have told you. I knew Julie enjoyed the picnic and the people, and that I'd feel even worse if I let her miss all that just to make me happy. And of course, I wouldn't be happy. Happy was not one of the available options. Nope, I said, let's go. I could hear something wrong in my voice, something sort of conciliatory, much less enthusiastic. I needed to turn, to smile, even to offer a hug. But by the time I did, I was alone. I started down the stairs, dressed now in shorts and a t-shirt, intending to make peace. I would ask Ernie where exactly he was going with Aura's family to tube and hike and which friends and relatives would be there. I would remember their names and ask about them later. I would do all of this in the jolliest of tones, as if I could not be happier. So, I said, entering the kitchen, we're exact. The remarkably tall and muscular creature I continue to call Ernie, despite his only occasional resemblance to the child formerly known as, stood at the counter, eating cereal box open, milk uncapped, cupboard open, refrigerator door ajar, silverware drawer ajar, but that's par for the course these days. What stopped me were the facts that A, he had his earbuds in, and given the volume at which Ernie listens to music, he could not have heard a military cargo plane land on the toaster, and B, he carried under his left arm a baseball Which seemed to suggest he was taking a baseball mitt with him on his trip with a family not ours on the single most significant annual celebration of our nation's heritage, also and not coincidentally a day of family bonding for our family, at least, at least until now. So I tapped Ernie to get his attention, and the surprise sent milk and a spoonful of cereal to the floor. He pulled out one earbud, the equivalent of a surgical procedure, with an expression that made it look as if he had just severed a toe in order to listen to whatever dull, irrelevant thing I had to say. And so instead of extending an olive branch, I heard myself saying, Wipe that up, and where are you going with that glove? He set his bowl down long enough to pick up the sponges we used to wash the dishes. On the floor, I said? How about a paper towel? Ernie is a track man, a runner, number two on his team, in the 440 and the relay, but at home you would think his blood had been replaced with cement. He stood holding the sponge, staring down at the tile as if waiting for the milk to evaporate. Eventually, he managed to find a paper towel and stoop and get up some of the cereal and throw the towel away, then reach for his bowl, requiring me to point out that he had done half the job, for which I received a look signifying that he was, once again, being unjustly oppressed. But he got another towel and wiped the floor more effectively, then reinserted the earbud and went back to his breakfast. I tapped him again. Out comes the earbud. One of the many problems with requesting an audience in this way is that there's no chance for casual conversation. One has made a request to be heard. One had better have something worth saying. What's with the glove, I said. Ernie shrugged. My son, with the A in AP English, for excellence in communication skills, his teacher tells us. (laughs) Seeing that I am not, to his disappointment, going to vaporize, he says, I thought we might throw a ball around. A few years ago, this would have meant something different. It would have meant the two of us going out into the backyard or over to the middle school field near our house. Things have been changed long enough for me to ask not the obvious we who, but the safely indirect when. This afternoon, he said, with ours, brothers and people, another dagger in my heart. To be thrown over for a girl, yes, of course, this will happen. To be thrown over for other teenagers with teenage interests, fine. But to have our Fourth of July ritual transposed to the girlfriend's brother, whose name might very well be Halo or Paperclip. But I have vowed to be bigger, to loom over my petty self-interest. So I say to my son, you need a ball? I couldn't find any. Did you look in the bag in the basement closet? Ernie gives a nod, meaning no, he hasn't, but he will, maybe. Don't take the green and black bat, I tell him. The thunder stick, he says. It'd be like cutting what's-his-name's hair. And something passes across his eyes, a kind of communication about something we both value and the particular way we value it. And I know the young man beside me is every bit the boy I've known for 16 years. Then his pants vibrate, he pulls out his cell cell phone, and he is gone. Julia, as I believe I've mentioned, is early to bed so as to be early to rise. That's actually in a previous story. Her soporifics are magazines. She works her way through six or nine articles on her way to Sandland. My routine is to come into the bedroom, remove the fallen magazine from her chest or face or the floor, toss it into the wicker basket she keeps near her side of the bed for that purpose, take off her glasses, fold them, and set them just in front of the lamp on her bedside table. You might think fluff would provide the gentlest cushion for the glide to sleep, but my Julia is at work even on the verge of rest. Her wicker basket contains the latest issues of The Economist, The Nation, Scientific American, The Nutrition Action Newsletter, Cook's Illustrated, American Demographics, a gag gift from a colleague that turned out not to be a gag, The American Scholar, Reason, Harper's, The New Yorker, The Atlantic Book Forum, and Texas Monthly. Everyone who knows her knows that when in doubt you get Julia magazine subscription. For a year, as if on a dare, she actually read each issue of Wooden Boat. I I did make a point of sorts by signing her up for Ohio Asphalt, the quarterly magazine of flexible pavements of Ohio, and Mulch, which inexplicably discontinued publication after just four issues. She is also blessed or cursed with a memory for detail, so not only reads but remembers that while resistant to rot, warping, and cracking, teak is a favorite food of the turnip moth. And that driver dissatisfaction increases significantly once the pavement serviceability index drops below 2.5. What was surprising then, as I entered our bedroom one night back in April, wasn't that she appeared to be engrossed in Smithsonian, but that on the verge of midnight she remained upright, eyes open. I undressed, brushed my teeth, etc. got into bed, flicked off my light. She was still at it. Good article, I said. Peril for the bird of peace, the plight of the black crown crane. Julia flipped a page. If I tell you something, do you promise not to jump up and down and make a federal case out of it? No deal, I said. What's up? She tossed the magazine into the basket. Well, it got hung on the rim, but close enough. Set her glasses on the table and switched off her light. Nothing. Sleep well, sweetheart. <laughs> on goes my light. What? Big sigh, dramatic sigh, a reminder that I am her burden to be endured, the man-child she must mother. She rolled over to face me. They've had sex. I didn't need to ask who. How do you know? I asked her. The expression on my lovely wife's face was not concern, consternation, regret, or any of that. It was strained tolerance, and not of them, but all about the chore of telling me. You asked Aura if they've had sex? I wanted to know, Julia said, matter-of-factly. There was something about the way she touched his shoulder the last time she was over here, I was pretty sure. So how exactly, I said, trying to find my way out of a tangle of surprise, irritation, concern, ignorance, and admiration, did this come up? (laughs) Apparently she had gone to get them at school one day, Ernie had left something in the locker room, which was locked, which meant he had to find one of the coaches, get the key, get his things, return the key, and so on, so she and the girlfriend had time alone. I said, you and Ernie seem to get along well together, and she said she thought they had a number of shared passions, and I know when I'm being toyed with, so I said, I imagine you've had sex by now, and she said, just once or twice, and I asked what sort of protection they used, and she said, vegan condoms. <laughs> At first, I couldn't understand what she was saying. I was thinking it was a brand, like Trojan. But apparently, her father got a box of experimental condoms made without casein, the milk protein used in latex. Julia added, casein is also used in adhesives and knitting needles. It's believed to be one of the most carcinogenic compounds in the human diet. (laughs) About this, I had many questions. But what I said was, no teenager has sex once or twice. If they're doing it, they've done it 30 times. Julia nodded. I said, experimental? That's not a good word when it comes to contraception. And she agreed and said she also used the spermicide made from lemon juice, but that made the act so unnatural, no, mechanical was the word she used, that she thought thought they should probably eschew penetration. Penetration? A 16-year-old girl said to you, the mother of her boyfriend, penetration? I suddenly felt 90 years old. Julia nodded again. Also eschew. Eschew penetration. So have they? When was this? This was Julia counted back as if she hadn't been thinking about it every minute, wondering how and when to tell me. This was Thursday. She adjusted her pillow, plumping it up under her head. You said, I imagine you've had sex by now. What if you had been wrong? I wasn't wrong. And I figured rather than make it sound like an accusation or an inquisition, I'd get right to it. I heard in her voice an underlying agenda. This led me to begin to suspect why she had told me, despite the fact that I would respond dramatically, and despite the fact that she had to tell me, because that's how we are. Unlike my parents, we don't keep secrets. Not about Ernie, anyway. Not for long. For just a millisecond, I imagined what a daily burden it must be to live with me, planning how to convey information to a lower life form. And you wanted to discuss this with her, I began slowly, because you dot, dot, dot. Because, Julia said, looking more determined, I can picture her with a baby on her hip a year from now. It could be a badge of honor for her. Beneath her anger, well, more accurately, beneath her concern, I felt the fear. I don't think so, I said. I pictured Aura, pictured her in those natural fabrics and sandals, considered that calmness, that assuredness bordering on arrogance. There was a kind of fear at work there, too, beneath that projection of certainty. Her parents were devout in their way, preaching the gospel of correctness, and whether she was as devout or simply felt she should be, I couldn't see teenage pregnancy as part of the plan. There was the argument against overpopulation, and there were all the challenges to control and order a baby presents every 10 minutes. Unless she was deeply romantic, even more divorced from reality than she appeared, that wasn't where she was headed. Then I remembered, she babysits. What does that mean? The most persuasive argument for birth control is a few hours alone with actual human offspring. (laughs) Drool spewers, crapshooters. I was trying hard to convince myself. Julia exhaled. When she spoke again, I heard the real her, cards face up. I can see that girl thinking she'll be an earth mother, a goddess. Just because, I started, but didn't have the energy to get into it. I kissed my companion on the nose to lighten things up, then on the lips. You'll talk to Ernie, she said. I reached around and switched off the light. Indeed, I will. I started to imagine the conversation, but knew if I kept going I'd never get to sleep. I considered waking him and getting it over with right then. I imagined trumping downstairs in my boxers, flipping on his light, yanking the sheets off his bed, and asking him what the hell he was doing, trusting his future to vegan condoms. But the moment passed, tomorrow, tomorrow would be fine. Enough time crept by that I thought she had fallen asleep when Julia said, Do you think they're edible? Do you think they're even condoms, I asked her, or do they just hollow out a carrot? <laughs> Ouch, she said. No, no, I told her, they cut off the point, you go going with the grassy end. The Japanese, she told me, made condoms out of tortoise shell. Stop, I said, she is not above making this stuff up. True, she reached for my hand, that slight pressure more earnest than any word she spoke. The earliest spermicide in Egypt was made of fermented dough and crocodile dung. I made a crude joke, and she made an obvious one about dough and ovens, and that's how we eventually got ourselves to sleep, my friend and I. I did, in fact, have a dutiful conversation with our boy one that involved no eye contact whatsoever. (laughs) It turned out to be much easier to raise the topic with virtually anyone else. I ran into Chip Edwards, whose son Franklin ran hurdles, which meant that we had passed a lot of dull hours and a few excited minutes on various high school bleachers together. So this is it, I said when the conversation turned, as it inevitably did to our growing children. We're at that point when all the birds and bees talk gets real. Chip asked what I meant. The stakes are officially raised, I said. Talk is given way to action. Our boys are one spasm away from causing themselves and some girls serious life complications. Franklin, Chip asked, in his dreams. If a girl even talked to him, he'd have to change his shorts. That's what I... Have you seen him recently? That late-onset acne is eating him alive. No girl's going anywhere near that mess. He looks contagious. <laughs> A few days later, I was in limbo in the dentist's waiting room. They were running behind, my life was seeping away, when Jillian Buell showed up. Ernie and Jillian's daughter, Macy, went to Montessori together and have been in the same schools ever since. Jillian and Julie have served on some of the same boards and worked on some fundraisers together, and more to the point, Macy has been romantically attached to Javier, a figure on Kathy Lopez's boy, since third grade. So here's a question, I told Jillian after she signed in and we said our hellos. There was no one else in the waiting room and some inane talk show was blaring away on the television perched in the corner above the office door. You're the mother of a beautiful teenage girl. She's got a steady boyfriend who also happens to be a teenager. One assumes that the prospect of mutually pleasurable physical activity has come to mind. Nobody, Jillian said, nobody on earth talks like you. But just to save time, yes, Ernie and Aura are having sex. That's not my question. But what makes you so sure? Jillian is a businesswoman. Everything about her is efficient. She's got short, dark hair and practical glasses. She's even a compact size, maybe five foot two trim. I saw them somewhere, and Aura stroked the inside of Ernie's wrist. So? That's not... Jillian reached out with two fingers, touched the inside of my wrist, and drew her fingers halfway to my elbow. That's not something you do unless your fingers have been other places. Her hand stayed on my arm longer than it needed to. Help me understand this from the perspective of a girl's mother, I said. You've talked to Macy about sex. The demon semen, Jillian nodded. She's been on the pill since September. They're healthy, horny kids, so you make sure they know about all the diseases. You make sure they know what usually happens to teen mothers dropping out of school, not going to college, getting into a financial rut there's almost no way to get out of. Then you stand back. I mean, not too far back. We've talked about how to say no if he wants to stick it where she doesn't want to be stuck, or if he thinks it would be fun to have some kind of orgy. You and Macy just chat about this over breakfast? Whenever. you pick your moment. She usually shrieks and puts her hands over her ears or turns her music up, but then we talk. We're lucky. We have bright kids and they've got ambition. They want to travel and have careers. Maybe it's sad. I had been nodding to be agreeable. Come again? Kids like Macy and Ernie, they want money more than they want babies. I mean financial security. They want houses and cars and trips to Europe. Having a child would ruin all their fun. I brought that up with my trainer, chiropractor, massage therapists. A few days a week, I still go to Beckham's, an overpriced training facility for jocks and ex-jocks. He was a baseball player. A few talented kids and too many annoying wannabes. We've got one NBA player, another who thinks he hasn't retired yet, a handful of college football guys who played on some NFL team for a game or part of a season, who knows how many soccer players. And while he was in high school, we had a kid who's now playing outfield for the Braves. The equipment is more or less what you'd find anywhere, but the trainers are good and our insurance covers the rehab stuff. Beckham's belongs to a husband and wife, both former national soccer players, neither of whom is named Beckham. They were going to call the place Pele's after the only soccer player most of the world knew, but at the last minute decided to go with Mr. Spice Girl. When my shoulder started really bothering me again, I signed up for time with Kirsty, a foreigner, a new hire, specialist in arm and shoulder injuries. I got a lot of grief at first, but the truth is I had missed that she was a woman. All I knew was Kirsty is an odd name. It turns out she's a former member of the Norwegian national women's handball team who lets people call her Christie, even though that isn't how her name is pronounced. I had her say it again and again, partly to get it right, partly to watch her eyes when she said her own name, like ice melting. When you tell people you have a Scandinavian trainer, they picture a stocky woman named Helga with her hair in a bun wearing a starched white uniform. Kirsty has blonde hair she wears on a long ponytail, translucent skin, and weighs maybe 120 pounds. I like to think soaking wet. Over time, I learned she has a core of steel. Her father died when she was young, her brother committed suicide, and when her husband, a Swede, turned into a nasty alcoholic, she took off with her daughter, a soldier. I don't think enduring those kinds of losses necessarily gives you any sort of deep insight. It could just drive you to despair, depression, or self-pity, but something about those eyes, even when she laughed, and the way she carried herself made me think Kirsty was already older than I would ever be. In biological fact, she's somewhere in her 20s. She spends half the year in Colorado, where her mother resettled and looks after soldier, half on our side of the country. She's done some work with Ernie, general training, so when I went in for my shoulder, she asked after him. He's got himself a girlfriend, I said. Seems serious. He thinks it's serious, she said, standing in front of me while I sat on a table. She held her left hand in front of my right one. Push. This girl wants to crawl inside his skin. He's smart and funny, and he projects confidence. She held up her right hand. Push. Then, he's going to have choices. I wonder how far she's willing to go to keep his attention. Her fingers were narrow, her hands small compared to mine, but when I pushed, nothing gave. You had a lot of girls before you met your wife. It didn't sound like a question. Why haven't you remarried? Most of the guys who come in here would gouge out an eye to go home with you. So would half the women. Kirstie laughed and shook her head. We did another set. Then she said, I'm not counting on anyone's promises. I'm not kidding when I say her skin is translucent. You don't have to stare for long to see the veins, as if she were some sort of biology class model. It has to be hard to be away from your daughter. I pulled off my shirt and rolled onto my stomach. She spread the goo on my shoulder, then attached the little pad, then the wire. It's good for her not to be dependent on one person, but I would like for her to be closer. She turned a dial. Say when. I tell myself it's because I think it will speed up the healing. I let her turn up the electricity as high as I can stand it, the muscles jumping from the stimulation. Men should have at least half a dozen women before they settle down, Kirsty said. More is better, otherwise they'll always be thinking about what they missed. But if Ernie gets a girl pregnant, I'll hook this up to his pulsa. The events recounted above might explain why I was not as surprised as I might otherwise have been when the seismic tremor came a few weeks later. I remember it being one of the last cool days, by which I mean one of those spring days when you wonder if winter might take one final curtain call before yielding the stage. Dogwoods and azaleas had bloomed, but the rhododendron were still mulling over their options. I clicked on my inbox absentmindedly, the way we do, and still can't tell you why I didn't delete the one with the subject line, please read this. I guess it was the please, combined with the lack of capitals and exclamation marks, and references to my weight or my pen. One s. Still, as I, as I opened the message, I was a fingertip away from sending it into the cyber trash. This has taken me a very long time to write. It would mean a great deal to me if you would read it to the end. Don't worry, though. I don't want anything from you unless you count the gift of being heard. It was the sort of opening that makes you get up to close the door to your office, which is what I did. And while the first thought that went through my mind as I stood was, which old girlfriend? There were a few dangerous ones. The second thought was, she had a girl. I can't explain my logic. Nothing I had read to that point, including the sender's email address, indicated that the author was a woman. But somehow I knew, and I knew who the young woman was, though I had never met her and didn't know her name. And so the rest of the message, or at least part of it, unfolded almost inevitably, like a dream of a trip to a place you've never been but where everything is familiar. The author's mother was a woman I had lived with for part of a summer in Iowa when we were in our early 20s, both intent on keeping our options open. The pregnancy closed a few off, most notably the possibility of our continuing the way we had been. She opted to rid herself of both me and it, and over the following months hung up when I called and never returned a message. Finally, I worked up the nerve to drop by the box of a house she rented just to make sure she was all right, half hoping there might be something left to rekindle, half worried about how to handle her current boyfriend. I didn't know who that might be, but had no doubt there was one, as she was the kind of woman who attracted crowds of admirers, though some men kept their distance intimidated, as I probably would have if we hadn't been jammed beside each other at the pizza joint bar where we met. Two hours later, my pants were around my ankles in her kitchen. She was all about leaping before she looked, which made those days exciting for better and worse. So maybe I should have been prepared for what I learned when she opened the door, that she had decided to stay pregnant and alone." Another thing I hadn't prepared for, to spend two last days in that house, eating and sleeping together and going for a long walk along the bluffs looking over the Mississippi. Elena had no job to speak of, nothing with the future. She was a graveyard shift clerk at a 24-hour convenience store that sold gas, and she ran errands and generally looked after an old woman in their early stages of dementia who seemed not to have any relatives and who paid Elena, as far as I could tell, in cigarettes which she stopped smoking once she decided to stay pregnant. For a spontaneous type, she had surprising discipline. Another thing about her, she'd do something genuinely generous for months in the case of that going crazy old woman and act irritated about it the whole time. She had a better self she wasn't exactly on speaking terms with. Elena had played basketball in college until she blew out her knee and when I lived with her she played at the Y on a men's team. She had adopted a sad ass pit bull that had been on death row at the animal shelter, but most of the time she seemed aggravated by it. My sense was that she had devoted so much energy running from a few things that she hadn't figured out what she was running toward. Of course, a year or two later, as you know if you followed women's basketball and I used her real name, she got on track. I sent money but even before she found gainful employment a check came back returned which is how I learned she moved. I tried the bank but her account was closed. She had never responded beyond depositing the checks, never sent a card or a photo, never indicated gratitude or annoyance. That last time I saw her in Burlington she made it clear that she expected nothing and in fact preferred that I disappear. She could be that way, fatalistic, cold, thanks in part to her parents who had shut her off a long time earlier because she claimed she never much acted like a girl, and thanks to the favorite uncle they farmed her out to who did something to her that she never discussed, though I don't believe it was sexual. She was smart and independent and reckless. She was also six foot three, which might seem to have nothing to do with anything, but a woman that tall has some decisions to make, beginning with how to stand. You can either slump and slouch to try to hide and to make men comfortable, or you can straighten your spine. Own it. The way Elena stood, you would have guessed she was six foot five. I resisted the urge to drop her a line when she started coaching, even after the first regional championship. By then I had married Julia, and Ernie was on the verge of speech, and the other child in the world that shared my DNA was largely an abstraction. I don't mean to sound heartless. It's not that I didn't lie awake some nights pondering my role, but the more time passed, the easier it became to forget for longer stretches. And now here is the daughter, a college student, having gotten some information from Alana and the rest off the internet. This is her letter. I suppose that sounds like an accusation, and if I'm going to be honest with myself, I've felt some anger can still feel it, but I'm not writing to you now because I'm angry. I'm writing because, for as long as I can remember, there have been moments when I've wondered, what if my father were here? Some of them are silly, like when Cheryl Nolan stole my juice boxes, and I imagine you big and strong, and some sort of weird hero who would beat a second grader over the head with a lunchbox. A fantasy. Then there were times when I'd be staring at homework and thinking, I bet my father wouldn't make me do this, or I bet he's really good at math. Just daydreaming. There have been men in my life, father figures, I mean, as well as women. Mom is pretty stunningly amazing, by the way. If you've ever wondered what you missed, well, I can tell you this, it would not have been dull. In some ways, I've had more adult attention than a lot of my friends who grew up with both parents. But that hasn't kept me from wondering, who would I be if my father had been here? I just wrote, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, then deleted it. Then wrote it again and deleted it. Making you feel guilty isn't the point of this. Well, maybe it is, a little. I'm wearing headphones sitting at one of those little tables at a coffee shop at the college I attend. This isn't about tuition. I promise, this is not about money. The idea with the headphones is to block out noise so I can concentrate and to make it easy to ignore people. But it also means being in a place, the coffee shop, and not quite being there. Which is how it's been, knowing you're out of the picture, not available, but at the same time wondering. So instead of studying for finals, I'm writing this, a letter, a message, that I've imagined sending for a long time. My guess is that you've wondered. My guess is that you've tried to imagine me the way I try to imagine you. But I bet you don't have a collection of Daughter's Day cards that you've written, wondering if you ever know where to send them. That wasn't the end of her message, but that's where I stopped. Thanks. Thanks.